Well, this morning we are going to be uh, considering the entire book of Luke. We have, we have completed the book of Luke. We have done it. It only took 101 sermons. So, uh, and so we, uh, we did it. Uh, and so uh, as is our habit, we take one final sermon at the, end of, at the end of a series like this, and we go over the entirety of the book to consider its themes the significant, uh, perhaps significant passages, uh, so that way we can gather back together what is, and really come together, what is the message of the gospel of Luke. And so for um, our, our primary passage that we'll be uh, considering this morning, that will help, help guide us in that effort, uh, we'll be reading Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version, and uh, I'll bring the text up on the screen as well. And you can find our passage on page 855 in the Pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So in order to really get the, the, to get the heart of the, the, the gospel of Luke, we have to go back to these verses, to this passage where Luke essentially dedicates this gospel to a man named Theophilus. Now, we don't know if Theophilus was literally his name or if it was a, uh, a nickname that was given to him, but he, he seems to have been a Christian of some social standing, most scholars agree. Uh, but we need to pay attention to what Luke tells him in these opening verses. First, he says that already many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. That is, these events uh, uh, that surround the person and work of Jesus. And he says these endeavors, these accounts, uh, are of the same kind as those eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them unto the Christian church. And so some time has passed between the events and Luke's writing such that there are people called ministers of the word and there are people that are recounting the work and ministry of Jesus Christ in a church setting in amongst a group of people that are followers of Christ. And so, uh, or else Luke could not have said these words. Uh, and so he's, so he's basically saying, look, some really important stuff has happened, and many have tried to write this down and to present an account of it, and this would, at least indirectly, uh, confirm uh, why we have uh, uh, three other Gospels. Uh, so we have Matthew, we have Mark, and we have John. Now, it also would seem that there are probably other accounts that are not inspired by the Spirit, and thus uh, those accounts that did not survive um, uh, in, in history. Uh, we, uh, we don't know. Uh, now, that is not to count 
um, the so-called um, Gnostic Gospels that came up later on around the second century, the Gospel uh, called the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, that, uh, that the secular news media tends to like to rediscover every 30 years and say, oh, we found this thing that destroys the Christian faith. And we're like, actually, no, the church has known about this for a very, very long time. And, uh, and it's a bunch of foolishness and you don't need to pay attention to it, <laughs> but uh, but we'll ha- we'll be happy to tell you again in thirty years when you find it rediscovered again. So uh, now, um, but he says, "Look, I am writing this. It seemed good to me to write down all these things for you." Um, and and so here we have in, the, in and so this means that his intent in the Gospel of Luke is to put together an orderly account, an organized account, and the, also the implication here is that what Luke is writing is historical. Now I highlight that because often the charge is laid against ancient gospel, the, the gospel writers particularly, that they didn't have much concern for historical facts. They were, they could play fast and loose with the facts. Uh, you know, they were like the Greek myth writers. They just didn't really care whether or not it was true. Luke cares very much whether it was true. In fact, the early church was notorious uh, for rejecting what are called pseudepigraphal writings, meaning something that was said to be like, for instance, the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Peter, which everyone knew wasn't written by Peter, wasn't written by Thomas. It was written in the name of Peter, in the name of Thomas. And the Christian church said, no, if it's, it doesn't work. If it's, if it's the Gospel of Luke, it has to have been written by Luke. Like if it's the Gospel of Matthew, it has to have been written by Matthew or else we don't want it. And so, um, and so, that's, and so that, is, uh, that, is, that is historically true about the early church. But apparently Theophilus was a Christian who had been taught the Christian faith concerning Jesus Christ. He had been taught it by the ministers of the word. And Luke wants to confirm what he was taught in this account of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel according to Luke. And this is where we get to the heart of the gospel that Luke writes. That Theophilus, that indeed every Christian who would read his account would have certainty regarding what we have been taught about Jesus Christ. We must say what we have been taught about Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. We live in an uncertain world in uncertain times. Certainty is hard to come by, but many will offer to give it to you if you pay them lots of money, right? I guarantee you 80% returns on your investment, right? And we all know that's going to be an automatic scam. But we have insurance policies. We have return policies because we are uncertain that our purchases will last I mean, think about how, how it's attractive to us to, you know, say, if they say, well, you know what, uh, I'm going to give this to you, but we have a 90-day return policy. You're like, okay, well, that, that, sh- that shores up the uncertainty I have about you and your product. We don't know what tomorrow or even the rest of today will bring. And further, we are taught wonderful things in our faith about, uh, about heaven, eternal life, and the kingdom of God. How do we know these things are true? Luke has written, not merely to Theophilus, but to us today, that the skeptic who hears his words might be persuaded, that the doubting Christian might be assured, and that even the assured believer 
would be strengthened in their resolve to live as Christians in the world. But what is our subject? What is it that Luke is writing about? What is his gospel about? That Jesus Christ is the promised, gracious, and resurrected Messiah. And those will be our three points this morning that summarize the book of Luke. First, we see that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And to be sure, these, these three points are really interwoven throughout the, all, of, uh, all of Luke, but they have special emphases at certain times in Luke's gospel more than others. And especially at the beginning of Luke's gospel, we see that identifying Jesus as the promised Messiah is, is, is at the forefront of Luke's writing. And we see this, first of all, in Jesus' wondrous birth. Jesus' birth was indeed wondrous in that it was attended by prophecies. Prophecies that came from the mouth of Mary, of Elizabeth, Zechariah, and Simeon. We like to call those the songs of Christmas, right? We like to look at those. I've even preached a whole series called the songs of Christmas through their songs that they give. Because that's what it is. It's poetry, but it's also prophecy. These prophecies that they gave were the fulfillment of the old covenant promises that God had made to send one who would be the son of David, who would bring forth the promises of the covenant. Jesus' birth was also attended by miracles. Certainly the virgin birth would be the chief of those miracles. But we, are, we, are, we need to remember that the virgin birth is not merely a theological oddity or picadillo of Christians around Christmas time. But that's, it was a salvation necessity because the Son of God and His humanity had to break from the heritage of sin that comes by the ordinary generation of children. And so the Savior had to be virgin-born. To this we add the circumstances surrounding John the Baptist's birth, how his parents had him even though they were beyond childbearing years, bringing back memories of, of the stories and miracles concerning uh, Abraham and, and Sarah and the birth of Isaac. Also John the Baptist's father, when he in his unbelief was struck mute, until in faith he gave his son the name that had been granted to him by the angel, John. And finally, though certainly miraculous in nature, but belonging to a different category, is the third way that Jesus' birth was exceptional and wondrous, that it was attended by angels. I'm sure your birth was celebrated, but no angels were present. Okay? An angel was involved in announcing the birth of the forerunner of Christ. An angel declared the birth of the Savior to Mary. An army of angels appeared in the sky in choral song to declare the wonders and glory of the birth of the Savior in Bethlehem to shepherds. All of these wonders are meant to confirm to us that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah, the one promised Long ago in the covenants that God made with the people of Israel, going back to Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets, the plan of God is being fulfilled. The promises of God are coming true. And so we see that Jesus is the promised Messiah in his wondrous birth, but also in his exceptional qualities, exceptional qualifications, we might say. 
Luke gives us his genealogy, tracing his genealogy, uh, not only through David and Abraham, but all the way back to Adam. Now, I don't recommend you do that when you introduce yourself to someone. They say, where are you from? Well, you know, going back to Adam. You know, he's going to go back, so. But he does, and he shows us that, that Jesus in his humanity has the required genealogy, is the required pedigree to be the Savior. But also in Jesus' baptism, Jesus is identified by heaven as the Son of God in his baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, the voice from heaven says. And he declared his approval of Jesus, and the Spirit descended upon him. We also see his qualifications in his victory over temptation. After his baptism, Jesus was led out into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. Jesus not only resisted Satan, causing him to flee from him, but he did so by using the scripture, specifically the book of Deuteronomy, the book of the covenant. As he did so, he was representing the people of God. Because Jesus did in, in the wilderness, what is, in, in 40 days, what Israel failed to do in 40 years. He was faithful to God and his commands. And so the question is, what is Jesus proving by all of this? Well, first, he is, once again, proving conclusively that he is the one of the line of promise. He is the one, that the only one who can fulfill the prophetic expectations of the Messiah. By his baptism, Jesus proves that he is indeed the Messiah, the one who is anointed by God as the Son of God. He is also acting as the representative of the people of God as he receives that baptism of repentance on their behalf and then establishes their righteousness in the wilderness. And so Jesus, by his birth, is in his exceptional qualifications, proves himself to be the Messiah, the promised one that has, been, has come forth to bring to fullness the promises of God. Here is the Savior, Luke says, God in the flesh, anointed with the Spirit without measure to accomplish the will of the Father. And this brings us to the second aspect of Jesus, Jesus' Messiahhood as he is the gracious Messiah that he displays in the central part of Luke's gospel in chapter 4, verse 14, all the way through the end of chapter 19. This is often what is referred to mostly as uh, the travel narrative, as Jesus begins his ministry and then he works in Galilee. And then in uh, chapter 9, verse 51, it says he set his face toward Jerusalem. And then from nine, chapter 9, verse 51, begins to make his way ever so slowly to Jerusalem in the cross. But in that time period, there are three key things that we need to note about Jesus' ministry. And first is that is Jesus' compassion for the helpless. Jesus displayed compassion for the Jews, to be sure, for the sick that were of the Jewish people and the, and, 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 and the hurting and the, and the lame and, and, and the diseased of the, of the hurting people, of, his, uh, of the Jewish people, absolutely. 
We would expect that. But he also extended compassion in surprising ways, given the attitudes and expectations of the time. He showed compassion to the Samaritans, who were considered half-breeds and compromisers and traitors of the faith. He showed compassion to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, who were considered unclean and unworthy of the mercy of God, working miracles and faith in them, even marveling at the faith of Gentiles that he ought to find amongst the Jews. In doing so, Jesus showed compassion to people, proving that the people of God are not bound by a particular nationality or ethnicity, but they are bound by the reality of who their king is who their Savior is. He showed compassion also to tax collectors and sinners. These were the people who had sinned in ways that were considered vile and disgusting in society. They didn't really have a saying in that time where, oh, well, we're all sinners. That's not how they talked. If you were a sinner, you were someone who would sin notoriously, egregiously, flagrantly. You were not being invited to the dinner parties, or to the family reunions. They were the people who were sinned in ways that the family was ashamed of. The tax collectors were considered traitors to their own people because they collected money on behalf of the Romans, and they would usually skim a little, just kind of pad it a little bit, or a lot, to help themselves. And so they were despised, but Jesus showed mercy and compassion to them. He showed compassion to women who were often overlooked and dismissed in that culture. He showed compassion to the poor because whether they're men, women, or children, they were all powerless and helpless. In all of this, Jesus displayed the very heart of God that is eager to show compassion to the weak and the helpless, even to sinners. And in doing so, Jesus fuels our hope and humbles our pride. Because we know that the compassion of Jesus is tender towards us always. And how can we then brag or boast over others about God's preference of us or his goodness towards us? Are there any of God's children who are his because of anything other than his sheer mercy? Have any of us been adopted by God because of how good we are? Or because we are not as bad as certain others? How can we sneer at others because of their sins while we ignore our own or excuse them? And even as we call one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord, as brothers and sisters who belong as children of the holy God and are called to holiness, as we we encourage one another to pursue holiness, we recognize that we do it by the grace of of the Holy Spirit, not inviting others to catch up and to be to our standard, because we don't, we don't define the standard of God by our standard. We all live under the holy standard of the Lord who called us. And so we invite others to join us by our side as we walk together as weak and imperfect sinners who are called saints for the, by the grace and mercy of Jesus and called to holiness and love. 
And so we note in this, uh, in, as Jesus, the gracious Messiah, his compassion that he gives to helpless, uh, to helpless sinners, even sinners like us. Secondly, we notice that Jesus um, expresses that his, the graciousness of God through his prophetic teaching. Uh, now, I don't know if you've noticed, but the Gospel of Luke has a lot of parables. And Luke's Gospel actually has more parables than any other Gospel. Not surprising, it's the longest one. And there are quite a few parables that are unique to the Gospel of Luke. It's in the Gospel of Luke that we find the, gospel, or the, the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. It's in the Gospel of Luke that we find the parable of the prodigal son. Now the parables of Jesus are meant to reveal the truth to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, that is those of faith, and to blind the hard-hearted in their unbelief. It's no wonder that Christopher Hitchens, the uh, noted atheist called Jesus wicked at times for his teaching in the Gospels because he couldn't make any sense of it. But Jesus does talk a lot about stewardship. He talks a lot about how uh, one's uh, attitude toward their material possessions upon the earth can affect their rewards in heaven. We cannot serve God in money. He makes it clear. But most of all, Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. In fact, that's what he called his gospel. It was the gospel of the kingdom. He did so often using parables for the reason we've already mentioned, but also he has to use parables to describe the kingdom because we have no way of actually understanding what life will be like in the kingdom of God. We have no way of actually comprehending what the kingdom of God will be because the kingdom of God is going to be an order of reality beyond anything we can possibly imagine. And so Jesus said he came to preach the kingdom of God that we would repent and believe. And one of the favorite titles that, was, that the people gave to Jesus at this time was that of prophet because he spoke as one who had authority. He didn't cite the rabbis and the tradition. He went, into, he, went to the, he went to the word. He even corrected the tradition handed down by the elders. And he did so because his authority was unlike any other. He knew his father perfectly. He knew the scriptures perfectly. He himself is the word of God. But we must be careful not to think that, uh, that Jesus' teaching is only culturally situated. That is, it's only for the crowds and the people then. His teaching is for us to consider today, to understand and to apply to our lives, that we may be fit, prepared for the kingdom of God. And so here in the Gospel of Luke, we see how the compassion of Jesus actually dovetails together with his prophetic teaching because the compassion of God towards sinners is revealed through the prophetic teaching of the Son. He reveals that the redemptive plan of God includes the poor and the despised. It includes the rich and the mighty. It includes pious Jews and Gentile sinners. It includes all the people that we don't think should make it until we realize that we shouldn't make it because we are unworthy. The grace of God is literally embodied in the person and teaching of Jesus Christ. And third, we see the graciousness of the Messiah and Jesus' miracles. 
Throughout his, his teaching, Jesus performed miracles. His miracles did all kinds of things. Healed the sick, the lame, they cured diseases, drove out demons, and even brought the dead back to life. And, it's, and, and we kind of people get really mixed up on this because they see the miracles and they read about the miracles in the book of Acts and they, and they kind of get caught up. They're like, well, we need to see miracles today. We need to see miracles today. And look, God is free to do any miracles that he so chooses. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. All right? Firm believer. You heard it here. All right? God can do what he wants. Um, but as amazing as these miracles were in the Gospels, every one of the people that Jesus healed even the ones that he brought back from the dead died. They didn't live forever physically. They all died and were buried. And so, and so we don't want to get it caught up in the temporary acts of power. What is the purpose of them? The miracles were meant to confirm the qualifications of Jesus as the Messiah to prove that he is who he said he is. And, that, and to certify his teaching, the amazing claims that he was making about the kingdom of God, about belief and trust in him. And so that means that the miracles in the Gospels are not the main thing. And neither are they the main thing for the church today. The teaching of Jesus is the main thing. Jesus himself is the main thing. The miracles were acts of power meant to confirm the message of Jesus, that the good news of the kingdom of God, long promised, hundreds and hundreds of years in the past, has now come in the person of Jesus. And if you will repent and believe in him, you will be welcomed in as a citizen and even a child of the living God. And that's crucial. Because there's plenty of people that are coming along with all kinds of messages to, 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 to snow us over, to woo us, to tickle our ears, to just get us to do what they want to do, which is usually to give them money, subservience, power, uh, uh, just applause, whatever it is. And they always promise, if you just do what I say and buy my book, contribute to my ministry, you know, give me the stuff, then you will be happy and successful and prosperous. All your dreams will come true if you follow me. But Jesus comes along with a message that he says will claim our very souls and may cost you your life. And it has cost the lives of many. As the church historian Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. And what a message that wicked, undeserving sinners like you and I who deserve to be destroyed under the white hot wrath of the holy God and the fire of his justice may rather be welcomed not as pardoned convicts but as his adopted and beloved sons and daughters of the king. Of course you need miracles to confirm that. As many people said, that sounds too good to be true. That sounds like a fairy tale. And it would be if Jesus had not come, if he had not displayed the, his qualifications in his birth and in his ministry, 
if he had not attended his teaching with power of the miracles to confirm what he said and what he taught to confirm the gospel message, it would be a fairy tale. But it's not. It is a message of grace, of radical grace, such that the Apostle Paul said it is so gracious that that when people hear it, they'll be shocked that they don't have to do anything for it. And that they'll think that you're just preaching a lawlessness. That just kind of, oh, well, you can just do whatever you want. God will forgive you. You And he says, no, 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 it's not that. But that you cannot do anything to earn this. It's not possible because even the stuff you do to try to earn it just earns you more wrath because the stuff you did is actually not as good as you think it is. No. It's like when you try to go sell something online, you're like, and you find out it's not worth what you think, right? It's like, oh, all right, okay. We haven't tried to sell a house yet, you know, but if we ever like move to another house in the neighborhood or something like that, you know, it's, it's like you really find out what's wrong with your house, right? <laughs> so you're like, oh, you're like, oh, that's hurtful. It's like, I did a really good job in that room, <laughs> I thought. So finally, finally, Jesus is the resurrected Messiah. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the gracious Messiah. Finally, Jesus is the resurrected Messiah. And this is what take, it takes up the very last part of the book of Luke. And just two aspects here, very briefly, is that, that Jesus is the resurrected Messiah. But to be resurrected, he died to bring salvation to us. The book of Luke is, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. Uh, because they, they follow a relatively similar pattern in their storytelling and how they approach it. John goes, he's often called a theological gospel in how he approaches and organizes his material. And so, but in those three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the synoptic gospels, Luke is the only gospel that explicitly refers to Jesus as the Savior or the bringer of salvation. He does it nine times in his gospel. Matthew and Mark communicate that, that, that in other words in Greek, but Luke highlights it explicitly that Jesus is the Savior. He is the bringer of salvation. And particularly, he does, throw, does so through the perfect life that he lived, culminating in his death on the cross for his people. We have in Luke that amazing moment that is only recorded in Luke of the thief on the cross in excruciating pain, who is promised entrance into paradise at the wounded side of the Savior. And Luke, remember, Luke says, I am writing this to you, Theophilus, because I want you to be certain. What does he want us to be certain of? He wants us to be certain that paradise is ours if we will only believe in Jesus. I mean, you talk about you talk about, I know a pastor who was preaching, and, there was, and he was preaching about the gospel, and he was really hammering the grace point home, and, he was t- and there was an older woman in his congregation. She came to him, and she was like, but there's got to be something I do. i got to contribute something to this. And he was like, no. <laughs> what can you give? What can you do to merit anything in terms of grace and mercy and, 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 and love from God, it is all free. Literally, the thief on the cross had his arms nailed. He couldn't have done anything if he wanted to. 
And Jesus says, you're walking into paradise with me today. All because he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Faith alone. And so even if we are as pitiable and desperate as that man upon the cross, we have no ability to give anything to God, nothing in ourselves, and none of us can, we can have heaven and eternal joy for nothing at all from our hands because Christ has given all. Be certain then that Jesus died for your sins, Christian. Be certain then, you who may not yet believe, that Jesus died for your sins. Every evil of your mind, heart, every evil word, every evil deed, even the ones you haven't committed yet. He took the punishment for our sins that we would be forgiven. But also Jesus, we note, is the risen and ruling Savior. Jesus would not be a Savior if he was still dead in the tomb. Jesus would not be, uh, a, a, his death would, he, he would not be able to affect his death for our sake if death still had a claim upon him. But he rose from the dead, conquering the grave. And so the unyielding terror of every living person on the earth, the impending end of our physical lives, has been defeated by Jesus Christ. I remember that hit me when I was 15. I was 15 years old when suddenly I couldn't sleep at night because I was afraid to die. I wasn't in danger of dying, but all of a sudden the reality of it took hold of me. It hits you sooner or later, sometimes sooner, sometimes later, where you realize what, what's going on, what am I got to do this, and now you can numb it, you throw that, click that screen on, get the, you know, fire up the YouTube, you can just, you know, numb yourself, but you know every time you turn it off, that's coming back there, it's waiting for you. And that's one of the reasons so many people just go from distraction to distraction to distraction to distraction because they cannot handle the silence because then the question comes, what are you going to do? And you know the answer is nothing. How do you stare into the void when you have no answer? But we are given an answer. We are given more than an answer. By faith in Jesus, he declared that we would share in his victory over the grave. That anyone who believes, though he may die physically, he said, will never die, but shall he live eternally in the presence of God. And what is more, in Christ's bodily ascension into heaven, he secured for us the promise of our own resurrection. And so struggling Christian, I do not know the reason for every hard and afflicting providence in your life. But I know that you, that you presently have the promise of eternal life in Jesus. You have the promise of a body that will never wear out and never die in glory. You have the promise that one day you will have eternal comfort for your sorrows. That the Lord himself will wipe away every tear from your eye. One day you will be completely and utterly whole beyond your present understanding. This is because Jesus is the raised and ruling Savior, 
who will not abandon his church, who will not abandon you or I, who sits upon his throne. We know this for certain because he is certain. Now, as we close, we need to note that many false religions and many cults are based on the concept of uncertainty. The whole idea is shoring up your uncertainty, doing things to make you feel better about your uncertainty. And unfortunately, some evangelical churches fall into that as well. They get the congregation feeling uncertain. And so, well, if you want to feel certain, well, you should serve as a Sunday school teacher and you should give more and you should do this and do that. And it's just guilt, just guilt and uncertainty that's fueling it. And that wears people out. But I mean, that's also how marketing works. Right? If I can make you feel uncertain about your iPhone, maybe you'll buy the Google Pixel, right? And, or maybe you'll get the, this latest thing or that that will make you uncertain and unhappy with what you have, that you will buy the new thing. Even the Roman Catholic Church deems it the height of arrogance to have certainty or assurance of salvation. But our reply is that our certainty, our assurance of salvation is not based in ourselves. It is in what Luke has sought to make us certain of in his gospel. That Jesus is the promised Messiah come to fulfill the promises of God. That Jesus is the gracious Messiah showing the compassion of God to all who receive him and confirming the grace of God with the power of his miracles unto us, unworthy as we are, even today. And that he is the resurrected Messiah who has conquered the great enemy and rules presently. And one day he will return, bringing everything to its glorious conclusion. So Christian, you can be certain. Jesus is the one we need. Believe in him, and he will not fail you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that indeed in Christ we have a faithful and wonderful Savior. The true Messiah, the anointed one. And Father, we pray, Lord, that where we have been uncertain, where we have been doubting, wrestling, and struggling, that we would have our souls strengthened in that reality, that we may have our spines steeled, Lord, against the world and against the temptations of the flesh, that we would make war against them, that we would take hold of you by faith and strengthen ourselves in your grace. We pray your spirit would do this, for we are weak and needy, Lord, even as your people. We carry this wonderful treasure in these jars of clay, brittle and breaking jars of clay. Lord, may you strengthen your people in your grace this morning. May we leave here more certain of the gospel than when we came in. And we, may we thus, thus leave also more joyful and hopeful than when we came in. May we leave more resolved to live holy lives after the image of Christ that we may shine like stars in the night sky for the sake of you and your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's